Good day, folks. This is Shane Hasty for the InfoQ Engineering Podcast. I'm sitting down and talking with Jim Rose, who is the CEO of Circle CI. Jim, welcome. Thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Start off, I suppose. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about Circle CI? Sure. Well, why don't we start with Circle CI? That'll probably explain how I got here. So, Circle CI, we are a continuous integration and continuous delivery platform. So, what we help software delivery teams do is essentially automate the process between the time a developer makes a change in code until that becomes a running application in the data center. So, we try and automate everything from a build, test, deploy perspective so that all of those repetitive tasks that a software development team has to do can become automated so that you can really focus your time and effort on the things that matter and on the special sauce that you're trying to build and deliver. I've been here at CircleCI for about almost four years now. I came in through an acquisition. CircleCI bought our company, which was called Distiller, where we had built a very similar service to automate the process for the build, test, deploy of mobile applications. And yeah, I've been doing startups for a long time. Started doing startups back in 1998. So I've been through a number of different boom and bust cycles and, and the notion of, you know, trying to build something quickly on a shoestring and automate all of the things that don't matter is kind of near and dear to my heart because when you're building startups, you're always undercapitalized and don't have enough time. And you really want to make sure that the things that you build are the things that customers want. When the two of us were put in touch, it was related to your employment processes. The teaser was you extend job offers to less than 1% of applicants. What's special about the employment process in this technical field? Well, I think hiring engineers in general is a, is a difficult task. So I got to imagine most companies have a pretty low acceptance rate in terms of the number of applicants that come in to the number of offers that get generated. In our particular case, we have a couple of additional factors to that that make bringing folks on unique. So one is we have a remote engineering culture. So our team is distributed globally. So we have folks working in almost every time zone and a whole collection of different countries. And so we look for engineers that are interested and comfortable working in that kind of environment where a lot of your interaction with your colleagues is virtual. And that's not for everybody. And, you know, you definitely need a particular type that wants to work in that environment. Mm -hmm. We work in fairly complicated languages and stacks. So we're a big closure shop. And as a consequence, that's its own community, and that community has a tendency to be very distributed as well. So, you know, we're looking for folks that either have an aptitude in the stack that we work in or have an interest in learning as they go. And so that is also something that kind of winnows out the field. And, you know, the other piece for us is we are building fairly large backend systems. And so we have lots and lots of folks building their software on top of our platform. And so, you know, we try and find people that have experience building large platforms and have also probably had an experience taking down a large platform and had to fix it along the way. 
And so, you know, you end up kind of with a subset inside of a subset inside of a subset. And, you know, what we try and tune our recruiting process to do is we really try to use our recruiting and interview process as a conversation with the candidate to figure out whether or not they're interested in those three or four unique aspects and problems that we encounter as a company. And sometimes when you come in as a candidate, it sounds great to work remotely. And, you know, through many conversations, you might realize that that's not, not something that you really want to do. Um, it may be that you don't want to work in the, in the technical stack that we're in. It may be that you don't want to work on backend systems, that your passion is being a little bit closer to the front end and closer to the, the actual customer. And so the way that we think about the interview process is it's, it's a conversation, right? It's about trying to find fit between what the candidate is looking for in terms of their next opportunity and a recognition of what we have found to be successful working inside of the Circle CI engineering team and approach. And that can be a bit of an exploration. And that's the way we try to approach our hiring. You dealt with a, or mentioned a number of different aspects there. I'd like to delve a little bit into the engineering culture and distributed team aspects. What makes a good engineering culture and how do you support that in your distributed environment? That's a great question. From an engineering mindset perspective, I always start from the perspective of mindset is I want our teams to be really dialed into being able to deliver value to our customers and making sure the things that we're doing and the technologies and the processes that we're building are always really tuned to building a great experience for our customers. Because if we build a great experience for our customers, our customers are software engineers. And by building tools that make their lives better, we make our own lives better. And so we have that kind of nice intersection between what makes our customers successful oftentimes makes us successful as well. So that's great. And that also is a big part of the interview process is really trying to figure out if, if that drives and is a passion of our candidates and of our users. In terms of you know, building a great engineering culture that also is distributed is because we're distributed and because we're remote and we have developers that are in a whole host of different time zones, we have a lot of different challenges, it puts pressure on the system to make sure that as an organization from top to bottom that we're very clear about what our goals are as well as what our values are. So we need to be very communicative and potentially over-communicative about what it is we're trying to accomplish as a company, what success means to the company. And you know, we try and constantly reinforce you know, what we believe we're trying to get done in a two-week timeframe, in a three-month timeframe, in a five-year timeframe, and making sure that people understand and have a North Star about what success looks like for CircleCI over time. And that's really critical. And then coupled with that, it's really important that we reinforce values and that, you know, what is important to us as a company in terms of an engineering culture, in terms of delivery culture, ultimately gets reinforced in the things that we're building, how we build them, and then ultimately the, the types of behaviors we want to promote. And so, you know, we talk a lot about being focused on shipping value and making sure that 
we're taking the necessary time and attention and making sure that we understand what a customer wants, that we do a good job of figuring out what that is and then getting it into the hands of the customer and then being able to fix it as we go. Knowing that the first release is the first step on a long journey to continuing to deliver value to that customer. The second part and a big piece for us internally is that I want our teams to feel empowered to take chances. And, you know, we're going to do things and they're not always going to work. And as long as you feel like you have the latitude to take chances and to try things and know that that's part of the culture that it's really important that we're trying to push the bounds and we're trying to, you know, you're not going to find new and creative ways to get problems solved if you don't try. We want to make sure that we have that kind of risk-taking culture really embedded inside of our teams and that people know that that's something that really matters to us. Kind of coupled with that is making sure that people know that when we release things out to our customers, that we want to have the necessary tooling and visibility to make sure we know if it's working or not. And if it's not working, that we can pull it back very quickly without really impacting our customers. And it's really important that as we get candidates to come in and we have development teams working on things, I want the culture to be reinforcing of that focus on the customer value, but also it's okay to take chances. We want to keep pushing the edges to make sure that we're finding new and creative ways of doing things. And the, the way we back that up from a team perspective is an idea that I always kind of glommed onto very early on was this notion of a most respectful interpretation, which is internally, we just try and make sure and we work from the basis of when somebody's doing something, they're doing something because they think it's best for the company as well as best for our customers. And that doesn't always work out. There are definitely going to be times where we try something and it, it ends up being an abject failure. It's okay as long as we can roll it back. But as a team, we want to make sure that we're all working from that place of mutual respect. And we feel good about the fact that we're all trying to kind of row the same boat going the same direction. And that becomes really critical with a remote team because a lot of those kind of more face-to-face -face interactions and a lot of the nuance in sort of interpersonal communication gets drained away when you're only working with people through a screen. I mean, you can think of all the times that things get misinterpreted through email or through Slack or through some other, other channel. All of that gets only heightened when the team members don't necessarily have that much experience working with one another face-to-face. -face. And so it becomes really important. So how do you create that team cohesiveness in a remote environment? It's hard. It's really hard. So one of the things that we started out with when we first got going is that we tried to slice our teams and rally our teams based on a functional area inside of the product. And what we found was we were getting these teams that were highly distributed, where you would have folks in Asia, folks in Europe, as well as folks in the Americas. And we, you would end up in situations where parts of the team would never talk to one another. And that probably wasn't the, the best situation. So what we've been working on recently is trying to not just understand the functional parts of the stack, but as well as 
try to get teams that overlap quite a bit onto the same areas of the product. So one idea is that no one should code alone. You don't want a situation where someone is trying to work through a problem and they're the only one awake, you know, because you run into situations all the time where you may just need to rubber duck your idea off someone else just to vocalize it and see if it makes any sense. But if you're the only one that's awake and the only one that has context for the problem that you're working on, that can be both very lonely and it could also be very destructive because you just don't have anyone else to work with. So then we've tried to coalesce teams together inside of geographies and inside of time zones so that at the very least from a virtual perspective, you have other people that are awake and other people that you can really work with to work on the problems that you're focused on. The other big model that we've put in place is we've tried to follow the the Spotify guild model. Mm -hmm. So as we've created these functional teams and as we've kind of focused the functional teams inside of geographies and time zones, there are certain skill sets that span across all of the various teams. And so we've used the guild model as a way of, for example, allowing all of our front end developers to be able to work together to, to work through problems that affect the front end of all the individual product teams. Same thing inside of SRE or in other sort of backend architecture decisions. And that seems to have worked pretty well as well. You're working with globally distributed teams. Are there any groups that are physically co-located or is everyone remote? So we do have a couple of teams that are physically co-located, but even in the physical co-location, we typically have them working on different groups or in different parts of the product. And the reason for that is we don't want to have teams that have 80% of the people in one place and then one person who's remote because that creates a a strange dynamic. Mm. And so we like it where even if we have folks here in San Francisco, the developers that are here are typically assigned to different teams Mm -hmm. so that the teams themselves basically work from the basis of everyone is virtual. And I think from a practices perspective and from a communications perspective, you just end up in a bit of a healthier spot that no one feels like they're on the outside. That's what I wanted to explore is, was there a risk of that? So you've consciously and deliberately designed the membership of teams to avoid that. Yeah. And it manifests itself in funny ways too, where if you have even two people in one office, and you go into a conference room and they're working off of the conference room Zoom, but everyone else is working off uh, their own individual Zoom on their computer, they're, all of their faces are big and you can, you can see reactions and you can see what people are thinking and how they're reacting to certain things that are going on. Whereas the people that are 10 feet away from the camera in the conference room, you don't have that level of fidelity. Even in those sort of small interactions, you end up in these kind of odd places. And so wherever possible, we try and, you know, we try and establish a, a, a similar baseline for everyone. Do you bring people together at any point? We do. So we have three different things. One is we have all person, all hands that we run at least once a year. Sometimes we run twice a year where we try and bring in all of our remote employees to one place. We're getting kind of big, so that's getting a little bit hard. But we try and bring in all the teams into San Francisco for at least a week so that people have the opportunity to connect. We work through a lot of big planning exercises, as well as just personal and sort of fun exercises 
So people have the opportunity to just get to know their colleagues that they've been working with remotely for the last six months. Mm -hmm. So we try and do that at least once a year. Sometimes we do it twice a year. We also, depending on the team and depending on the function, we run what we call small hands as well, Mm -hmm. where if there are particular areas where the teams need to come together and work together to figure out either planning exercises or architecture exercises, we will then bring them to one location. That could be here in San Francisco, it could be in Canada, it could be in Europe. And the idea there is that then that team can come together and work face-to-face and work through whatever problem they have. And then every other week on a virtual basis, we do our sort of standard call hands call, which is just everyone who's awake, which isn't everyone in the company because not everyone could be awake at the same time has the opportunity to sort of come together, can walk through whatever we're working on as a company, and then create a forum for people to ask questions from there. One of the things that you mentioned is really important is being consistent about delivering value. But value is one of the hardest things to quantify and to identify. What does value mean? And what does customer value mean in your context? Totally depends on the team. And certainly value is the thing I think that all of our teams struggle with the most because A, what is a customer? Especially if you're someone that's building a backend system, who's the customer? In most cases, it's other systems trying to ingest information and send information back and forth between services. And so making sure you understand, and customer ends up being kind of a a loaded word. We usually think about it from the perspective of the consumer. Who's actually dependent and consuming off of the work that you're focused on is a great way to think about it. And you can then sort of disambiguate between is it a customer that's outside of our four walls or is it another service internal to CircleCI? So one is making sure you understand who the user of the system is and who's the consumer of the system. And then the second area that we really focus on is We try and tease apart the notion of value in terms of creating something net new that will make the overall system more productive is usually the way we think about value versus something that you're working on that's really about trying to make the system more efficient is usually more about maintenance and extension. And so that isn't always a clean break, you know, and there's always negotiations around Well, is that really value? Is that not value? Is this something that's maintenance that we should be focused on to make sure that we continue to make the system more resilient? Is it really something that we should be focused on because our customers need it or other consumers need it? There's not one great answer. And I think if we talk to all of our development teams, everyone would have a different answer. So what becomes really important for us is just making sure that the values remain the same, that as long as we are delivering at a consistent pace. And as long as we are pushing the boundaries and making sure that we're trying to build something that's both creates value for our users, as well as we're trying to find the edges of what's possible and what's interesting, kind of what fits within and outside of the bucket of whether it's a story or, or a, a task becomes probably less important to us. But it is a, it is a negotiation that happens inside of every team, for sure. So you've spoken about some of the aspects of the way you bring teams together. You've got that shared understanding of value. 
what are some of the other things that do support an effective culture? Well, I mean, I think one part is really starting all the way up at trying to hire someone and making sure that your recruiting and hiring practices match the values of the company so that you're getting people into and having a conversation with that candidate in a way that reinforces the the cultural mores and values that you want to move forward as a company with. So focusing a lot of our time on making sure that we are doing a good job in that conversation with candidates about what's important to us, what's important about the way we work, not only helps us communicate that to a candidate, it also helps reinforce it with the people that are here, right? Because you have to represent what is important to CircleCI as a company and as a team. And that really forces you to sit down and think of like, well, is that thing actually the most important to us? And is that what we want to be trying to bring and move forward through the company in the hiring process? I think the second part and a big area that we spend a lot of time on is actually onboarding. So even after we've hired someone, what becomes really important for us is, you know, we wanna make sure that once someone comes on board, that we can get them as productive as humanly possible in the shortest amount of time, just because I think it's great for a candidate who comes on and a, and a new hire that comes on to be able to hit the ground running on that first day and really feel like they're contributing into the team. And so that means that you have to have great technical systems in place so that you can fire up someone's environment quickly so that they can get into the code and really understand what's going on and making sure that that's repeatable. I think the second part is making sure that we have the right educational model and tools in place so that on day number one, we're really working with new hires and helping giving them context for not just the thing that they're working on, but what we're trying to accomplish from a systems level and from a company perspective as a whole. I would say early in our history, we probably got the hiring part right, but really kind of botched the onboarding part because you kind of felt like, well, we've got this person and we know they're really good and they're just going to show up and then we'll figure it out after that. And as we started to ramp up our hiring practice, we really realized that the important part after that was making sure that every new person that comes on board has a great onboarding experience because there's nothing more disheartening than getting to a new job that you're really excited to be at and then not having a clear path forward for how you get up to speed and then how you start contributing. So we spent a lot of time on the onboarding process and making sure that the onboarding process then reinforces those, those same goals and those same values. The last piece is as we've gotten bigger performance and really helping people understand what it is we expect out of the various teams and how that gets measured becomes more and more important, right? There's all the talk about Dunbar's number about, you know, as you get closer to 150 folks, you really start to lose that personal touch because you just can't know everyone in a company that size. And for Circle, we've just passed through Dunbar's number just over like the last, I want to say three months or four months or so. Mm -hmm. And, you know, prior to having 150 employees, I think there is a general 
understanding of, you know, what good performance means, what we think is important, how that gets measured, because people can just ask, you know, if you're, if you're not clear, you can ask someone else on your team, you can ask someone else on another team. And there's usually that shared understanding. I think once you get through 150, what's really important is to try and get that shared understanding onto, you know, I'm saying a piece of paper, but you know, not really a piece of paper, but just basically get it written down so that people can, can look at it, examine it, and, you know, have a opinion about, is that really what's important to us? And then really codify that shared understanding. Because I think if you don't do that, as you get bigger, it just, everything becomes rife with potential misunderstandings. And that's not great for anyone. You really want to make sure that you can establish the, the guardrails for everyone from a professional perspective, so that they really understand what they should be doing, how they're going to get measured and how to move forward. Jim, thank you very much. This has been a, a really interesting conversation. Any final advice for people who are out there, for the audience who are trying to do some of this for themselves, either growing their organizations, look, looking at the opportunities for distributed and virtual teams and so forth? I think the trick with distributed remote teams is you have to start from the basis of over-communicating. You just have to be in a situation where you feel like you're repeating yourself all of the time and you need to be repeating yourself all of the time because it's very rare that all of the same people are in the same room at the same time. And so over-communicating becomes really, really important. And then I think the other part is just making sure that when you have a remote team, that there's no sort of in versus out, that everyone is working off of the same basis. So everyone's using the same tools, everyone's having the same experience, even if they're sitting right next to one another. And for a lot of teams, that can be a little jarring, it can be a little unnatural, but over time, it becomes something in a, as a practice that becomes second nature. Jim, if people wanted to get hold of you, where do they find you? Circle CI. So we are at circleci.com. If anybody wants to send me a note, I'm just Jim App. I'm easy to find. And yeah, we're always interested to hear what people are working on and, and how we can help. Thank you very much indeed. All right. Thank you. Thank you.